Welcome to the Paranormal Factor Podcast. I'm your host, Richard Wright. Thanks for stopping by. This is the place to explore mysteries, investigate the otherworldly, and share stories of the inexplicable and the strange. You see, within the realm of our daily, ordinary lives, there is a paranormal factor always waiting to reveal itself. So let's begin exploring together the truly weird. Welcome, listeners, and thanks for joining us on the Paranormal Factor podcast. In this new episode, we're introducing you to a striking UFO case, the Wanakee Reservoir UFO Incident. What happened over the Wanakee Reservoir in 1966 remains a mystery. It was a chilly January evening when police received the first call regarding something strange flying near the New Jersey Reservoir. Just after 6.30 p.m., police were sent to check out a light near Raymond Dam. Well, it didn't take long before the police radio filled with more news from the reservoir. Something was burning a hole in the ice. We'll be joined by writer and paranormal investigator Eleanor Wagner, who's written about the case, and Nick Frashy, a police officer who was actually at the scene the night of the incident. But before we start, as a reminder, as usual... Please be sure to check out the Paranormal Factor Podcast Facebook page. You see, every single day, Monday through Friday, there's new paranormal and supernatural material for you to check out. Do you know what a Groot slang is? Well, head to the Facebook page to learn about that monster and others. Fans of the show know it's the best place to find monsters, quizzes, film TV and book recommendations, and current paranormal news stories from around the world. And don't forget to check out the show notes after listening to our episodes because they contain resources if you want to look further into any of our topics with recommended books to read and videos to watch. Now, on to our episode. 56 years ago, on January the 11th, 1966, something very strange and striking happened outside the small suburban town of Wanakee, New Jersey. The air was clear and cold, and residents of the Passaic County borough went about their usual daily routines. Little did they know before the day was over, something would happen, something fantastic and unexplainable, that would change the lives of many of the townspeople forever. And what happened over the Wanakee Reservoir in 1966 remains a mystery. It all started in the early evening of that Tuesday night. It was a chilly January evening. The winter sun was already long gone over the western horizon and past the great Wanakee Reservoir. On that crisp and clear evening of January the 11th, 1966, at around 6.30 p.m., calls began to come in from all over the area describing what seemed to be an extremely bright glowing light out over the nearby Wanakee Reservoir. Dozens of calls were coming in from panicked residents and workers at the reservoir describing more or less the same thing. Most reports said it was a very bright light, larger and brighter than a star, mostly white, but sometimes changing to colors such as red, blue, and green. The unidentified object was described as hovering over the frozen lake surface and moving about in what seemed to be a deliberate pattern at an altitude of between 250 and 1,000 feet. It would at times perform amazing and seemingly physics-defying maneuvers with sudden vertical drops and rises. Even weirder were the reports of the object projecting some sort of beam down onto the reservoir, which was powerful enough to melt holes in the ice. 
Wanakee Patrolman Joe Sisko received the first call just after 6.30 p.m. Sisko was sent to check out a light near Raymond Dam. Well, it didn't take long after that for the police radio to flood with more news from the reservoir. Officer Sisko was in his cruiser when a call from the Pompton Lakes dispatcher came over his police radio. It was a report of a glowing light, possibly a fire. Then Sisko heard the words. People in Oakland, Ringwood, Patterson, Totowa, and Butler claim there's a flying saucer over the Wanakee. Well, I pulled into the sand pit, an open area to get my bearings, Sisko recalled. There was a light that looked bigger than any of the stars, about the size of a softball or volleyball. It was pulsating, white, stationary light changing to red. It stayed in the air. There was no noise. I was trying to figure out what it was. Wanakee Mayor Harry T. Wolf, Councilmen Warren Hagstrom and Arthur Barton, and the mayor's 14-year-old son Billy heard the reports that something very white, very bright, and much bigger than a star was hovering over the Wanakee Reservoir. They decided to pull into a sand pit near the Raymond Dam at the headworks to meet Officer Sisko and get a better look at the object. The mayor's son, Billy, spotted the object at once, flying low and gliding oddly over the vast frozen lake like a huge star. But it didn't flicker, Billy told reporters the next day. It was just a continuous light that changed from white to red to green and then back to white. The next thing that Officer Sisko remembers is his patrol car's radio going bananas as calls from all over a 20-mile radius flooded into the police headquarters. Sisko radioed Officer George Dykeman, who was on patrol nearby. Two teenagers came running up to his patrol car, frantically pointing at the sky and shouting, Look! Look! At that moment, Wanakee Civil Defense Director Bentley Spencer drove up with Civil Defense member Richard Vrooman. The police radios are all jammed up, Spencer excitedly told Dykeman. Back at the sand pit, Joseph Sisko's radio crackled as another unbelievable message came across the airwaves. Something's burning a hole in the ice. Something with a bright light on it going up and down. And then another transmission fought its way through the commotion. Oh boy, something just landed in front of the dam. Spencer and reservoir employee Fred Steins raced to the top of the 1,500-foot-long Raymond Dam, where they described seeing a bolt of light shoot down as if attracted to the water, like a beam emitted from a porthole. Before long, there were multitudes of people gathered at the reservoir watching the UFO and its mysterious actions. The weird object would do its strange act over the water for over an hour before finally speeding off into the night at great speed and without warning. Moments later, it would be reported as hovering over Lakeland Regional High School and stopping at several other locations in the area before vanishing to leave residents in a state of shock. So many people had seen it, including many policemen and even city officials, and all of them agreed it was no normal aircraft or celestial phenomenon, but rather something truly unbelievable and baffling. Now, for more insight and an eyewitness perspective, we're joined by author and paranormal investigator Eleanor Wagner and former police officer Nick Frashi. So listeners, we're joined by Eleanor Wagner, paranormal researcher and author of several paranormal books, as well as Nick Frashi. And we're going to be talking about the, the Wadakee Reservoir UFO case that goes back to 1966. And this is kind of a big one. Eleanor has written about it. Nick was an actual uh, eyewitness at the time, and I want to go through some questions with both of you about this extraordinary event, and Eleanor, I'll start with you. 
How did you first hear about this 1966 UFO case? Local meteorologist Nick Stefano, who's a friend of mine, knew that I was looking for stories about UFOs in the Sussex County, Passaic Morris County area, which is my county surrounded by others. And he was friends with Nick Frashy and knew that Nick Frashy was a p policeman who was at the site the night of the incident at the Wanakew Reservoir. So he connected me with Nick Frashy so that I could write his story in my book. Awesome. And just for the listeners, I tried to give a little bit of background, but if you could give your perspective, what are the general details of the case? Sure. There was, um, well, Weird New Jersey, which is an, a, a magazine that's pretty well known here in the New Jersey area, uh, documents a lot of paranormal activity from over the years. And they covered this particular story, which happened on January 11, 1966, around 6.30. There was a Wanakee patrol man who had received a call over his police radio um, from the Pompton, Pompton Lakes dispatcher about reports of a glowing light. And People in the surrounding areas were flipping out because everybody at the time would listen to police radios and were hearing about this glowing light and they were watching the glowing light and everybody was rushing to the, uh, the Wanakee Dam because they wanted to see if they could catch sight of it if they hadn't already done so. So you had hundreds of people that were heading that way with cameras because everybody wanted to get a glimpse of it. And so I, I believe that's why Nick Frashy was actually called in because they needed extra police coverage because so many people were calling it in and rushing to this to the site of the incident. Am I correct about that, Nick? Yeah. This light was shining out from underneath a UFO, an unidentified flying object that was hovering above the dam. It. I don't know if you heard me say that the dam was frozen over. We were covered with snow. It was in the middle of the winter. And this light was shining down onto on the dam to melt the ice. I mean, that's what your visual will, will give you the impression of. If you're looking at it, it looks like it's trying to melt the ice. And so people were just calling in this strange light and didn't understand what it was. And so it, it kind of created a big um, episode with all the people in the area who was trying to rush there with their cameras and see if they could catch sight of it themselves if they weren't already a witness to it from wherever their location was. Yeah, and we should we should mention this is a key time, you know, the the sixties. Uh, Project Blue Book is going on. Um, you have UFO fever that's been raging since the fifties. Um, all kinds of cases that are coming up. You've got some big ones out in New Mexico at that time, uh, but you know you've got TV shows right on uh, the invaders and all of these sorts of things. So it really was a peak period for interest in, in this sort of thing. So it doesn't surprise me that so many people might, uh, you know, try to get out there and see what was going on. Eleanor, let me ask one more question, and then I'm going to move over to, to Nick. When you started researching this for your book, was there something in particular that, that maybe was surprising or maybe even shocked you about the case that was, that was sort of an outlier for you? I'm not sure if it was necessarily a shocker. I just, the whole thing was pretty cool to hear about. I mean, that this thing was burning a hole in the ice. And when Nick went up there, he, he was going really up there with the, another guy in uh, a military vehicle, vehicle, if I remember correctly. And they were heading up there because they were told to see if there were any people that got through the barricades. And if they were, they wanted them to go get them and get them down. So they were mm -hmm. literally driving, driving on the ice and, 
this is the part that I find really that freaked me out. I think the most that they're driving on the ice, and all of a sudden Nick freaks out and he's like, "Stop! Stop the vehicle! There's a hole in the ice. We're gonna fall into the water." And the guy he's driving with is like, "No way! It's this! It's it's Nick. We we can't break through this ice." And Nick is like, "No! I'm telling you, there's a hole in the ice. You're gonna drive us into the water." And the guy stopped, and they got out, and sure enough, they walk over and this is perfectly melted oval in the water had they driven a little bit further they would have driven right into the water so i find that kind of creepy and and cool at the same time (laughs) wow yeah it it is nick let me switch switch over to you my friend how were you first notified of the incident back in 1960 How, how were you brought into it uh i was uh coming on uh on uh duty to the midnight shift i was a sergeant at the time and um, I would be relieving Sergeant Al Capana, who drove to my house with the patrol car to pick me up. And that's when the call came through for mutual aid. And they cleared it through the chief of police uh, for us to send send a couple of men up there. Al was going off duty. He said, look, I'll stay with you. So we both went over there to help the crowd control, actually was what it came out to be. But we got dribs and drabs of it because it was, we had in, in our police cars, we had an AM, FM radio. It was on the radio and they were talking about it on the radio. So now I was putting pieces together saying, oh, this is why we're on our way here because of this situation. Uh, uh, and when we got there, it was packed and it was crowded. There was people all over. Traffic was backed up all over the place. The local police were taking care of the traffic on the roads. We drove through and around and went up to the dam and and we stood our ground up there. By this time, the uh, the crowd started to dwindle down. They all started going back down to the street. And uh, About what time was that? Was it late that, in the evening? That was about 11 o'clock. Okay. And uh, Mike Perna who was a patrolman for the Wanakee Reservoir Police, was there. And I said to Mike, where were they shining this light? And he says, oh, over there. He says, at the top of the dam. So I says, can we get around over there? And he said, yeah. I said, well, let's go and see what they were shining the light on. And we took his patrol car, because he had four-wheel drive, and we drove around. We drove on the reservoir itself. And it was about four inches or so of uh, snow on the ice and uh, I said to him let me know when we're on the ice he goes we are we've been on the ice I said alright so I'm looking ahead now I see this black spot and I'm saying that's water I said There's, that's a hole over there I said stop no he said this can't break he said this is like 10 inches thick so I says Mike stop the, 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 the vehicle we're going to end up going in the drink. He stopped it. Al and I got out with our flashlights. And we walked about 100, 150 feet, something like that, to where this oval hole was in the ice. And um, I shined my light around. There was no footprints, nothing around the hole. There was no pieces of ice in the hole. It was a perfect like cookie cutter. Just cut it right out. 
So the edges, the edges then were not jagged; they were smooth. No, it was smooth. It was smooth. Wow. And I took pictures. Well, I had a uh, one of those Kodak the slide cameras that uh, most of the policemen used to carry that for accidents and stuff. And I started taking pictures. I took pictures of the ground, the shoulders, no footprints. I took pictures of the water, and then headquarters kept calling. Get back here down to, to the headquarters that the military is here and they want to see you. So we got back in the car, drove back down to the headquarters, which was at the base of the dam. And there was military, a couple of military cars there. And uh, the one guy come walking over to us and he uh, asked us what we saw, what we were doing and this and that and the other thing. And you know, in, in those days, the military, they were like gods. So you did everything that they told you. And the guy said to me, are you sure it was a hole? I said, yes, look, I got pictures. And I took the camera out, and he ended up taking the camera, and he says, look, let me develop this so that we don't compromise the, the evidence, and then I'll get, you know, get back to you. I said, okay. And that was it. I never saw the camera again, never got no pictures or anything. But it was very odd because within, I'd say, two weeks after that incident, Dr. Heinrich sent me a big package, a form, and filled out this form. And uh, I didn't know who he was anyway, Dr. Heinrich, but he was from some university. And and it yeah, was, he was actually he was actually on Project Blue Book. Yeah, you're talking about Dr. J. Allen Heinrich. That's right. So he sent this yeah. package to me. I filled it all out. Uh, what did you see? Did you touch this? Did you touch that? What did you feel? Uh, and I, I filled this whole thing out and mailed it, had a, a FedEx it back to them, and I mailed it back to them. And what I, in there, I asked him a question about my camera and about the film. And I did get a letter back from him stating that he would check and see if he could locate my camera, but then I, I never heard no more after that. It was nothing. Al and I, we kind of kept in the background because in those days, people, you know, deemed you that you were a nutcase. And uh, Al and I both were up for lieutenant. We just passed the exam. I said, if this gets out, they'll never make us. They'll say these guys are nuts. So we kind of kept quiet and just talked with the military guys. Yeah, were those, do you recall if those were Air Force? Were they Air Force guys? I, be, I believe there were Air Force. He was in a, a dark gray four-door sedan. I don't know if it was a Plymouth or whatever, a Dodge or something. He had a driver, and um, and another guy was with the driver. He sat in the back. They took all these people down to a school that's before we got there and they asked anybody that had pictures or cameras and they took pictures that they wanted to develop these films themselves so they wouldn't compromise the evidence and whatever and those people i i imagine it was like 50 or 60 people that gave their cameras in they got their cameras back but no film weeks later but and since well, then yeah, they there were also some people that did not hand in their cameras smart enough. They kept them behind, and that's how some of the pictures leaked after. 
Yeah, the the pictures leaked out later on, quite a a long time after. Some guy, and I don't know what his name was, but he ended up leaking that picture out, and that was exactly what they saw. They saw this like cone shaped uh, light shining down on the dam for 10, 15, 20 seconds or so. And then it slowly went higher, 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 and then zoom and took off. Wow. Actually, it was, it was Claude Catant who took the photograph that came out 50 years later in a Daily yeah. Voice article. Yeah. Okay. That was his name. Yeah, this is, you know, really compelling due to the fact that you have a large number of eyewitnesses who see this. Uh, you have more people coming out who are seeing certain elements. And then, of course, you have law enforcement that also is on scene. And what did you sort of, Nick, what did you sort of make out of all of this? I mean, did you think that it was... Well, i tell you, uh, right offhand, I thought, the first thoughts in my mind was that this was some kind of experimental uh, vehicle the military had because we had Pic Picatinny Arsenal is not that far from from there, maybe 30 miles or so on Route 23 up there. And, and they do a lot of testing up there for missiles and stuff. And I thought, well, maybe it has something to do with them because there's always something going on. You know, I mean, this is not new to the area, these lights. You used to hear it from other cops that worked midnight shift or something. They say, you see that light go by and then different colors and this and that. So we really didn't take it that serious because it's happened before. This is the first time something came down that low. Chuck Theodore was on the, uh, on the radio, in the radio room. And he told me that he said, Nick, that thing looked like it was like 500 feet off the ground. He said, it was so close. You think you could touch it. And that light was as bright as could be, like lightning. So, and there was a lot of people. There was a couple of yeah. hundred people on that lawn. So, right. And it, yeah, I don't know if you guys are aware of this, but there's a long history of UFOs and dams, reservoirs, water sources of objects appearing over those areas. For some reason, and when I say appearing over, I'm not talking about high in the sky, where they literally dropped down. There have been some cases where people have reported actually seeing some kind of protrusion going into the water. So there's a lot of theories out there on what that might be. It might be uh, an ability to convert water into some sort of fuel source or pr propulsion. Um, yeah. But it's it's not uncommon. And you kind of answered my question a little bit. Nick, that I was going to follow up with, and that is, I did come across fairly shortly after this event, there was a, a second sighting. Did either of you guys come across that, Eleanor? Did you come well, across? Well, I can, I can, I can tell you that there was one prior because Nancy Bradley wrote a remarkable story about it, a UFO, which crashed in the inlet on Lake Owasa in western Sussex County in July of '63. And the story was squashed and swept under the rug as a missing Cessna aircraft. But the, the many families who saw the craft before and when it went down into the, the lake, know for certain it wasn't a man-made structure. And the U.S. government and military came in and 
pretty much told them they had to hush and not talk about it. So Nancy had written the story because her uncle Arnold lived on that, that farm when they were told to not say anything, but he didn't want to shut his mouth. He wanted to get the story exposure and he literally went to his grave telling his tale. And so she wanted to keep the story alive by writing a story about that crash on the family's farmland in their lake. And so then all of a sudden you get this story that happens uh, at the Wanaki Reservoir, which is very similar, although the UFO didn't crash um, and you didn't have to be removed by the military, but the military was definitely involved in trying to cover it up because they came and confiscated everybody's cameras and nobody saw their their cameras or their pictures ever again. Mm. Okay, let me follow up with a, some additional questions here. Eleanor, what is it about this particular case? Because I know you covered other UFO cases before and, and done research into other cases. What is it about this one that really makes it different for you from other cases? Because Nick is a police officer who was actually at the site. You know, you, you tend to hear stories from just random people and you, you, you tend to think, well, a lot of people exaggerate or may have misinterpreted something. But, mm -hmm. you know, when you hear... Um, somebody who was a police officer, a man of the law, who was there, who saw this, it changes your whole perspective. And you say, well, this guy's not lying and his partner's not lying. And they, they had to hush about it and didn't want to be ridiculed for what they saw, that they only talked amongst themselves about it because they didn't want to be not given lieutenant position because of what they had to say, or they would be called crazy. So when you get it from that viewpoint, that whole perspective, it just makes you think, very yeah. differently about just I, an I, ordinary I, person telling a story. Yeah, I really, I, I really agree with that. And you know that one of my personal favorite UFO cases, and I think absolutely one of the one of the best ever, is the Socorro incident. And that also involves yeah. a Socorro police officer named Lonnie Zamora, who was mm -hmm. unimpeachable from the standpoint of character, background. So whenever I get a case that involves law enforcement, you know, fire department, anybody who's a professional, and particularly with law enforcement, the powers of observation are much more heightened because of the job that they do, right? So, you know, Nick, your your powers of observation and what you see, how you look at a scene, all of those sorts of things are going to be much more heightened than an average citizen. So that's always compelling as well. So, yeah, I really concur with you on that, Eleanor. Is there a legacy with this case, Eleanor, or sort of an enduring takeaway that we would have? Uh, I'm not, I'm not, no, I don't think so. I think it's just, um, it, it's something that people, I have to tell you that people in New Jersey actually own it. They love it because it happened in their area, in their home. And so it's pretty well known, oh, kind of like a a tale that goes down in history because it happened here. You know what I mean? Yeah, sure. So, yeah. <laughs> Maybe the endure, the enduring takeaway is don't ever give your camera to the to the military. <laughs> Absolutely, really. And you know, and I think I, I think I, I think I remember Nick even saying to me, it was like after he gave him the camera, he's like, "What an idiot! Why did I give him my camera?" And he kind of I think he anticipated he wasn't going to ever see it again, and sure enough, he never did. Yeah, but like he said, you know, uh, back then, you know, the military. If, when the military rolled into town, people took notice, and if they asked for something, you gave them. And I've come across that sentiment 
uh, from that time period, Nick, by a, a lot. Uh, where people went out to investigate and they said they asked for it and I just gave it, you know. Um, it, 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 you're right. It, it was a very prevalent attitude toward the military uh, during the 60s. Nick, what was the aftermath regarding the official response in the media? What Was there like an official statement that came out or sort of a, uh, an overarching way the media ended up presenting all of this? Yeah, well, I don't think the the, the media. I mean, was it uh, had the Patterson Evening News and and some of the other local papers. Yeah, I mean they they took it serious. They, I mean they they reported exactly what they heard and, and reported exactly what people said. They didn't scrutinize anything uh, because, like I said, all these people. Um, you had uh, one of the guys that was on the. Um, the desk there that was Chuck Theodore, he was on the desk. He was in the military. He worked at one of the uh, missile bases for years. So these are not people that get overly excited. I mean, I wasn't excited. I, I wanted to go. I wanted to find out more, you know. Mm-hmm. But uh, no, I I didn't talk about it, to tell you the truth, to anybody except our own group. We talked, but we never talked outside of the shop. The first guy I even tell you the truth, I think the first guy I even talked to out of my family was uh, Nick Stefano. I worked for the Wannick, the, the uh, Wannage uh, building department at that time, and Nick come in and we we was to kibitz about the weather and this, that, and the other thing. And I don't know how we got talking about it, and I told him the story, and he was amazed at it, you know. And I said, "Don't laugh." And he goes, he says, "No, no, no, no." He goes, "I'm not laughing." Because I said, I don't, I haven't told anybody, but I'm figuring this is, you know, 30 years later. So what do I care, you know? Right. Yeah, but, you're retired. You don't have to worry about come, anybody coming after you. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. Project Blue Book shut down. You know, you don't need to worry about them. And, yeah, uh, yeah. Was there was there an official uh, statement or position that the um, police department put out after this, Nick? No, no. They 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 didn't take any position. They investigated it. The following day, that following morning, the mayor and the councilman and the the police chief and all they all went up and saw what I saw. Nobody went up that night. Al, I, and Mike were the first ones to to tell them that there was a hole there. Nobody knew there was a hole in the ice. They said, "No, the light was shining down. That's what it's got to be shining on something." Let's go look. So we. We drove around. We had to go down the road and all the way around and open these big gates and then drive through that. So that was nobody else went except the next day they went. And that's when they put the picture of the mayor and them over there looking at this this hole in the ice. Ah, okay. Well, Nick, I'm going to give you the final word here. Uh, Are your impressions today pretty much the same as when you experience the events or do you view it differently after all these years? No, it's just, I just wish that I got myself more involved at it. That, I mean, the thing that held me back was the, you know, being ridiculed and that, but, um, and because that's the attitude that a lot of people took, not in our group, but outside of our group, you know, people that are non-police officers and firemen and what have you. So uh, we didn't talk much about it, and uh, but I'll tell you, 
I always was skeptical, but after that night, I'll tell you, that's it. I would, I tell you, I would believe anything. Because I never saw, I mean, a hole like that, and I saying, how could they take a piece of ice out of this ice, make this hole, not leave any footprints, not leave anything? It's impossible. It can't be. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. Right. So, wow. Uh, well, I really appreciate both of you coming on the show and telling this really unique story in the area of ufology. And Nick, thank you for uh, for your service to the community uh, for all those years. Eleanor, what's your latest book? I want to give a plug here. So let us know what the, oh, what's the thank latest you. book that's out. I actually came out with Sussex County Hauntings and Other Strange Phenomena Part 3. <laughs> and that just awesome. came out this last Halloween. Yeah. <laughs> and where can my listeners get a hold of that? You can go to my website, authoreleanorwagner.com, or straight to Amazon for any of my books. Fantastic. And they and they really are great, great books, great information, so and well-researched. Well Thank uh, you very much. And any um, paranormal, your paranormal team, the Lady Ghostbusters, anything new that you wanted to share? We are no before? longer, we, we are no longer the Lady Ghostbusters because I've got just about as many men as I had women. We are now oh. called the New Jersey Spirit Hunters, <laughs> New Jersey Spirit Hunters. And we are going back to the Sterling Hill Mines in Ogdensburg, New Jersey sometime next month, which I'm really excited about. Fantastic. All right. Well, thank you guys very much again for, uh, for coming on the Paranormal Factor podcast and sharing this very unique UFO case. Appreciate it very much. Yeah, Thank you so much for having us. Thirteen years after the 1966 UFO sightings at the Wanakee Reservoir, the nonprofit organization Vestigia prepared a detailed study of the strange lights that were witnessed. Vestigia is an organization that seeks to provide plausible scientific explanations for unexplained phenomena. In other words, skeptics looking for objective answers. It came to the conclusion the glowing lights seen over the reservoir by hundreds of people were the result of seismic pressure from the nearby Ramapo Fault. Vestigia's theories, however, do not dissuade eyewitnesses from their belief that what they had seen was truly a UFO. Wanakee officers Jack Wardlaw and Chuck the Aurora rejected the immediate military explanations of the mysterious lights as merely swamp gas or a helicopter and did likewise with Vestigia's contention. It was reported that unknown men posing as military officials from the Air Force were making the rounds in the area, intimidating residents and discouraging people from talking about what they'd seen. Some people even claimed these mysterious men had confiscated photographs taken of the phenomena. The military denied these individuals were with them or that they had had anyone in the area investigating at all. One Air Force colonel would state, We've checked a number of these cases and these men are not connected with the Air Force in any way. The claims of mysterious officials confiscating photographic evidence is cited as being one of the reasons there's so little documentation of the Wanakee event. Although the UFO was witnessed by so many people, including police and high-ranking officials, there is, strangely, only a handful of photographs of the alleged craft known to exist. In fact, most of the photos were sent in anonymously later and makes it hard to ascertain who took them in the first place. And it also makes it difficult to determine if they're real or hoaxes. One photo in particular, showing the object shooting a beam of light downwards, has become intensely debated and analyzed in the years since, with no real conclusion. 
Since we don't know who took these photos and have no negatives, it's hard to say. What we do know is that the incident did happen. And so this odd lack of photographic evidence from such a well-documented mass sighting has been seen as proof that someone tried to suppress the event, says Brent Swanser, author and crypto expert writing for MysteriousUniverse.org. Other witnesses would also insist they had seen military helicopters and even jets in the area shortly after the initial sightings and in the months after. But the Air Force denied this as well, while at the same time making efforts to explain away the UFO sightings as misidentified aircraft or a weather balloon. And the Pentagon offered its own scenario, what hundreds of people had witnessed in the skies over the reservoir that January was nothing more than the planets Venus and Jupiter in a rare celestial alignment. Incredibly, there apparently was very little follow-up investigation into the case. No one ever went back to examine those holes in the ice. No water or radiation measurements were taken, and the appropriate authorities never made any real efforts to interview witnesses. Most of what we know is from independent UFO researchers who pieced together what happened from newspaper articles of the time, Swanser says. We're left to wonder just what happened out over that expanse of frigid ice all of those decades ago and what it all means. So was this simply ordinary phenomena that was misidentified or something else? Was there a cover-up that succeeded in burying the incident in obscurity? And if this was really an alien craft, then what was it doing at the reservoir and what did it want? These questions may never be adequately answered, but the UFO incident at New Jersey's Wanakee Reservoir remains one of the most compelling and startling cases of a mass UFO sighting, one that has sadly been overlooked. And those that witnessed the craft that brought beams of light down on the Wanakee Reservoir are sure this was no military or any other type of craft made by humans. And it was not a stellar or atmospheric anomaly. It was shapeless, changing fuzzily from structure to energetic glob, it hovered and maneuvered silently in a deliberate pattern and appeared to be intelligently controlled. It blinded with its intense white and colored lights. It shot forth with accuracy some form of strange light energy capable of piercing and carving winter ice. And it captivated those who saw it. And then it was gone in an instant, completely out of everyone's sight. But it would remain in the memories of the eyewitnesses, the sight of something unearthly, the experience of something alien. Postscript, January the 12th, 1966. One day after the initial sightings of the UFO, patrolman Jack Wardlaw reported seeing a bright white disc floating in the vicinity of his home in the Stonetown section of Wanakee, just west of the reservoir. It seemed like only a block away, above Lily Mountain, maybe 1,000 feet up, Wardlaw said. Don't ask me what it was, but I do know it wasn't any helicopter, plane, or comet. It shot laterally right and left, it stopped, it moved up and straight, and then it moved down and disappeared in the direction of Ringwood to the north. Wardlaw described the object as definitely disc-shaped, and at certain angles, egg-shaped. October the 10th, 1966. Whatever it was that visited the skies over the Wanakee Reservoir in January, reappeared for its most fantastic showing to date in October of that year. But this time there were hundreds of calls to police, more lights spotted, and the lights seen near Dead Man's Curve, which runs near the reservoir, were even brighter than before. 
The first reported sighting came shortly after 9 p.m. on the evening of Monday the 10th when Robert J. Gordon of Pompton Lakes and his wife Betty saw what they described as a single saucer-shaped object about the size of an automobile glowing with a white brilliance. At first I thought it was a star, Betty Gordon recalled, but it seemed to be moving. It had a definite pattern. It would move to the left of a tower and then move back directly over the tower. I'm quite sure it was not a planet or star. Wanakee Police Sergeant Ben Thompson was driving his patrol car south along the reservoir at the time. Thompson looked out of his car and, to his astonishment, saw the UFO heading right toward him. I saw the object coming at me, he said. There was an extremely bright light. It was a bright white light, bright like when a light bulb is about to blow, and it was very low. It appeared to be about 75 feet over the mountain. Thompson noted it had been a close call. Well, next week, we stick with unidentified flying objects as we present to you three of the best UFO cases from France. You'll hear about the incident dubbed France's Roswell that indicated a close encounter of the third kind. What did the witness see? The case where scorch marks left by a UFO were documented and intensely analyzed by French authorities. What would they find? and the occasion when a biologist and his wife observed an unidentified shiny metallic object hover about 20 minutes over their garden. What did it do there? So join us to hear all about these top three UFO cases from France next time on the Paranormal Factor Podcast. And now it's time for the episode quiz. It is time for the quiz, and here is your question. Thousands disappear in what Alaska paranormal area? Is it A, the Arctic Sea, B, the Black Mountains, C, the Alaska Triangle, or D, the Alaska Vortex? Once again, thousands disappear in what Alaska paranormal area? Is it the Arctic Sea, the Black Mountains, the Alaska Triangle, or the Alaska Vortex? And the answer is C, the Alaska Triangle. The Alaska Triangle is a vast area in the remote U.S. state of Alaska, which is probably the least known area for cryptozoologists to apply their studies around. The borders of this eerie region begin at Barrow in the far north, Anchorage in the south, and extends to Juneau in the southeast, then back up to Barrow again. It consists of vast boreal forests, barren tundra, and icy peaks. This triangle is thought to contain mysterious creatures and secrets hidden in the wild Alaskan bush. Many of the reports of missing people are centered there as well, which may have something to do with the possible cryptids that supposedly roam the area. Reports from the triangle cover everything from sightings of Bigfoot and aliens to planes being swallowed into vortexes and people never being heard from again. In fact, strange aircraft disappearances in the Triangle have been noted for years. In 1950, one of the nation's largest disappearances of military aircraft and personnel occurred in the region. A C-54 Skymaster carrying an eight-man crew and 36 passengers left Anchorage at 1 p.m. on January the 26th. The airliner made a routine radio check two hours later as it flew over a small town in Yukon. It was the last communication anyone ever received from the flight. 
A search effort was mounted incorporating U.S. and Canadian planes aided by thousands of volunteers on foot, but nothing was ever found of the C-54. Notably, in 1972, a private plane carrying U.S. House Majority Leader Hale Boggs, Alaska Congressman Nick Bigich, and aide Russell Brown and their bush pilot Don Jones seemingly vanished into thin air while flying from Anchorage to Juneau. The plane lost contact amidst a storm somewhere between the two locations. For more than a month, 50 civilian planes and 40 military aircraft, plus dozens of boats, covered a search area of 32,000 square miles. But no trace of the plane, the men, wreckage, or debris were ever found. Strange little people, mysterious beasts, aliens and UFOs, disappearing people in planes, they all make the Bermuda Triangle pale by comparison. The cases are compelling and frightening, so much so that we'll be covering the Alaska Triangle in depth in a new episode coming soon, right here on the Paranormal Factor Podcast. Well, that'll do it for this episode. A theme song is Knockers by Cinco courtesy of Upbeat Music. Hey, before you leave, if you could, please do me just two favors. First of all, if you did enjoy the show, please leave a like on your favorite listening application. And secondly, if you liked what you heard, please spread the word. Love to have some new listeners out there to join you. I'm your host, Richard Wright. Keep your eyes open for the unusual folks, and thanks for stopping by.